right. Well, this is going to look pretty weird having this nice little headset on and then also holding a mic. I was just asked by Kinley to make a quick announcement. Please get seconds if you'd like some. So there's more food there and there. So while I'm talking, I will not be offended if you get up and go get some more food. We would love that because we always have a lot of leftovers. All right. Well, thanks for coming out tonight. My name is Derek. Derek King, I've been on staff here at CSF slash Lewis House for a long time. I'm one of the older folks around here, and I kind of just hide down under the stairs. So we call it the Hobbit hole, but it's really more of a Harry Potter situation where I feel like I've, I feel the, 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 the feet of the Dursleys coming down the steps every time all you lovely students go up and down. But have a lot of fun with it, and yeah, so I'm mostly the Lewis House side now, but I've been on staff at CSF since 2011 when I graduated college, so that really dates me. And every once in a while, usually about once a year, I get asked to come back and speak at Shift, and it is a great honor. I always love it, and I always am reminded of how old I am, and every year it seems like I'm getting older and older because you all look younger and younger, and I just get less and less cool but I guess that's just the way it goes. So I wanna start off tonight telling you all a story about a guy named Arthur. So Arthur was a young Irish lad. He was living about the time of the American Revolution. And Arthur was a Jesus follower, so he was a Christian. He loved Jesus. Well, during his life, Arthur observed two things that bothered him, two disturbing things. And as they would bother, I think most people that, that follow Jesus, the first thing was there was not clean drinking water in the town that Arthur grew up in, that's Dublin. Uh, and so I'm sure it's not a surprise to you that in the 1700s, they didn't have a very expansive knowledge of bacteria and water. And so a lot of people were getting sick from the drinking water in Dublin at the time. And Arthur was like, yeah, what, what can I do about this? this? This Something about this seems off and wrong. The second thing was he noticed that in his town of Dublin, there were a lot of families and lives being destroyed because of alcohol. There was something at the time going on called the gin craze. So I'm, you probably know what gin is, but it's a, it's a clear distilled liquid. So we're, you know, we're in bourbon country, but gin is a, a really high proof alcohol. So very alcoholic like bourbon. And at the time, this was kind of a new drink that was sweeping the world, I guess. And Arthur was, was seeing how it would destroy families, that, that, that men and women would get addicted to this drink and become drunks, become alcoholics, and it, it, just, it just ruined lives, and it saddened Arthur. Uh, and, and this was exacerbated by the fact that uh, there was the water crisis. So people were getting sick from the water, and so all the more reason to drink gin, right? So the gin wasn't gonna get you sick, at least not in the same way that the water would, and so this just, it, it got worse and worse. So Arthur saw all this, he was watching this happen, and he wondered, what can I do? Uh, like as a Jesus follower, he wanted to do something. He felt like there's, there's some stuff going wrong and I want to help. So he had this idea. Why not make a new drink? Why not make a drink that was both safe to drink and wouldn't destroy families and lives like gin was doing? So while, you know, George Washington and company were kicking some British butt across the pond, Arthur Guinness 
decided to make a new drink using a different kind of yeast that we now just know as Guinness, Guinness beer. So in this little story, in this little snapshot of the story really, I think we see something of the complicated history that Christians have with alcohol. So on the one hand, many drinks were uh, actually discovered by Christians. So, so, you know, there are famous drinks like Trappist beer, which is one of the most famous beers in the world, is just brewed by Trappist monks. Uh, the, the first recorded mention of Scotch whiskey was actually at a monastery. So Christians have been using alcohol, celebrating alcohol, making alcohol for thousands of years. But on the other hand, Christians have also led temperance movements and prohibition movements and have fought against the use and misuse of alcohol. Now, since we're talking about alcohol tonight, I think we need this disclaimer up front. I'm speaking at a freshman ministry shift, of course. Now, there may be some leaders in the room that are a little bit older, but I'm guessing that most of you are under 21, which means, of course, according to the laws of the land, no booze for you. Now, I know that the uh, country's laws, our country's laws, are not the highest laws that we submit to, but we still do submit to them. This is what Scripture instructs us, instructs us to do, to submit to our earthly authorities. So you might be wondering, well, wait a second, if I can't drink, why are we even talking about this? And I think the reason is, is whether you realize it or not, you're forming habits and patterns of thought that are going to stick with you well beyond college. So it's worth considering as Christians, what does it mean to live wisely when it comes to alcohol? Now, I don't know if you grew up in Kentucky like I did. I grew up in rural Kentucky, in Beaverdam, Kentucky. Does anyone know where Beaverdam is? Oh, a couple. All right, let's go. Yeah. So very small town. It, the, the fact that it's called Beaverdam tells you all you need to know about the size of the town. This is a very small, small place to grow up. And uh, let's just say that, that alcohol had a very complicated relationship with the Christians in, in Beaverdam. So they had these things while I was growing up called wet, dry votes. So if you grew up in Kentucky, in a small town, you may have heard about this. If you grew up in a big city, you may be thinking, I have never heard of this before in my life. But when I was growing up a few times, I think at least two or three times, the county held a vote to decide whether to legalize the selling and serving of alcohol, which means, yes, it was illegal to serve and sell alcohol in my county when I was growing up. And I think they, they actually did a wet dry vote after I left and voted to go wet, which means you could then serve uh, and sell alcohol in your county. But I think there are still counties in Kentucky today in which that's not the case, where it's still uh, illegal. And in this environment, so I grew up in a, in a small uh, Southern Baptist church, um, very rural, conservative place, and it, it kind of seeped into my imagination. I don't think anyone ever told me this, or I don't think I was ever taught that alcohol was a sin or from the devil, but that, that somehow got into me, somehow got into the way I thought about the world. I remember going on this trip, our church would take these, these bus trips. We called them baseball trips because we would usually catch a baseball game, but really we were just going to different cities throughout the U.S., and we do all the touristy, typical touristy things. And one of these, we went to New York City, right? So we went to Yankees game, of course, it was Yankees-Red Sox, incredible game to go to, because uh, I'm a big baseball fan, it was a lot of fun. I remember we got on the subway, 
and we're, we're leaving uh, Yankee Stadium. I don't know if you've ever been on a subway before going into or out of a major sporting event or a concert, but it's normally packed because nobody wants to pay $50 to drive down and park close to the stadium. So you take the subway in. And, and we're on our way out, and I remember I was lucky enough to get a seat, and I'm in high school, and, I, and I'm sitting and watching this group of guys who had Yankees jerseys on, and they were drinking beers on the subway. And I, I don't know why I remember this or why this is so burned into my memory, but I remember having this thought, this thought of like pity towards them, that they were going to hell. And I just thought, how, how messed up is that, looking back on it now, that all I knew about them is that they were Yankees fans and they, they drank alcohol. And on the basis of that, I, I thought they were going to hell. Now, not because they were Yankees fans, although that's probably a better reason than if you drink alcohol. But I just noticed that this, something about this is off. And thankfully, I think scripture actually does invite us into a wider picture for thinking about alcohol well. So if you grew up in an environment like I did, in a kind of small Southern Baptist setting, uh, when Jesus turned water into wine, that's like the wildest story in scripture. Like, okay, jo like a whale ate Jonah for three days and then spit him out, cool. But Jesus turned water into wine, I don't know if I can get down with that. That's crazy. There's this old joke about uh, Southern Baptists that Jesus turned water into wine and ever since Baptists have been trying to turn it back into water. And that's, that's like kind of true. But here it is, right here in scripture. Here's the passage, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, before we move on, I need to, to draw your attention to something to reread a few words in case you missed it. Nearby stood six stone water jars, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. We're talking about 150 gallons of wine here, people. So you could fill a fish tank of about this size of wine. That's a lot of wine. And here's the other thing. This wasn't just like a crap load of wine. That's the official wine term. This wasn't just official, like, like a crap load of wine. This was the best wine. It wasn't two buck chuck. This was the real deal, the Jesus vintage. Jesus is bringing the party people, and he's bringing a lot of it. But we can't reduce this to a story about alcohol. Yes, that's part of the story, but this really isn't a story about wine. It's about the glory of God. Verse 11 says, 
This is the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. When Jesus turned water into wine, he wasn't making a statement about wine. He was giving us a glimpse of God's kingdom. It's no coincidence that several times throughout Scripture, God's kingdom is compared to a banquet or a feast. So when Jesus turned water into wine, it's as if he's peeling back the veil just a little bit and inviting us to come and see to come and see the God who is glory and prepares before us this excellent, enormous banquet feast. A feast that includes a lot and the best of the delights that God's world has to offer. Yes, including wine. So we can't write off alcohol as a sin or from the devil, as my high school, the high school version of myself did, not if we want to be faithful to Jesus. That's a mistake. But it's not the only mistake that we can make when it comes with alcohol. And I assume you know the other. I, I, I mentioned at the beginning that Christians are often conflicted about alcohol. There's this complicated history, and perhaps no one, no one individual embodies this conflict better than the philosopher and apologist C.S. Lewis. Now, if you've been around here very long, you, you probably know we, we like C.S. Lewis. He's a, kind of like our patron saint. We named the house after him. I named my firstborn son Lewis. Uh, my wife would want me to say at this point that we had that name picked out before Lewis House became Lewis House, okay? So we did not name him after the house. Um, but yeah, we, we like C.S. Lewis around here. And it's no secret that C.S. Lewis liked to drink. He was in a group called the Inklings with him and his buddies. They would get together. They'd go to the pub once a week. They'd talk about theology and, and uh, whatever they were writing at the time. And, and actually, one of his buddies was J.R.R. Tolkien, who you may know as the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And there's this, there's this great story I love of Lewis and Tolkien walking down the streets of Oxford, and there's a beggar there asking them for money. And Lewis gets out $20 to hand to the beggar, uh, and, and they keep, you know, Tolkien and Lewis keep walking on, and, and Tolkien says, are you crazy? He's just going to spend that on booze. And Lewis said, well, I was going to spend it on booze, which I love that. It just encapsulates C.S. Lewis so well. So though he enjoyed drinking himself, Lewis saw firsthand its dark side. His brother Warney, with whom he was very close, was an alcoholic. And since they lived together most of their lives, I'm guessing that Lewis cleaned up a lot of Warney's messes, literally and figuratively. Whenever uh, Lewis died, his funeral, uh, Warney missed his funeral because he was passed out drunk in a ditch. So for Warney, alcohol didn't bring life. It brought death and destruction. So we, sh we should not sugarcoat this. Alcohol can destroy lives, whether it be from one moment, a drunk driver taking an innocent life, or from a lifetime of addiction that rips apart a family and also usually takes of life. Few things have brought men to ruin like alcohol. So to treat it as a toy or something we can just enjoy however we please is the height of foolishness. And Lewis saw this clearer than anyone. Now, we, we love Lewis around here for a lot of reasons. 
right? But he's probably most well known for his children's stories, The Chronicles of Narnia. So if you're not familiar, a quick introduction. The stories revolve around these children who go into the enchanted, magical world of, of Narnia, and they meet the great lion, Aslan. And through these children's stories, Lewis tells the Christian story. The lion, Aslan, represents Jesus. He is an allegory for, for Jesus Christ. And in one of the stories, the, the kids meet this character called Bacchus. I think we have a picture of Bacchus here. Now, I know there are probably a ton of Roman mythology fans in the room, and I don't have to tell you this. But if you know your Roman mythology, you know that Bacchus is the god of wine in Roman mythology. But here he is popping up at a children's story in, in Narnia. He's this gregarious, kind of fun, outgoing figure, and he's surrounded by dancers, and he's just, you know, a romp of a party all in himself. But after meeting him, the, the girls are walking off, and they're talking about, about him, and, and the, the one of them says to the other, I shouldn't have felt safe with Bacchus if we'd met him without Aslan. Let me read that again. I shouldn't have felt safe with Bacchus if we'd met him without Aslan. As he so often did, Lewis smuggles in a profound truth into this simple story. We shouldn't feel safe with alcohol if we meet it without Jesus. Look, I get it. College and alcohol go together. Like, I don't, you know, peanut butter and jelly, whatever. You're in college, you drink, you get drunk. It's part of the, part of the deal. College parties serve booze of, of every kind, I'm sure. But let me, let me take a shot here. Just take a shot in the dark. The, the drinks that they're serving at college parties are not the fine wine that, that Jesus uh, t turned t into at, at the wedding. And I think this should actually be a clue. That these parties, these pictures of the high life, it's not the picture of God's banquet feast. It's a cheap imitation of it. If you're using alcohol to, to numb the pain or to fit in or to be cool or to get drunk, you're not meeting it with Jesus. Alcohol makes a fine servant but a crummy master. And how we think about alcohol, how we choose to drink, either now or in the future, is on one of two paths. You're either on my way or God's way. And these are the only two paths available to us. Jesus himself said as much. Do you want to lose yourself? Do you really want to lose yourself? Then, then try to find yourself apart from me. That's the path to destruction. But do you, want to, do you want to really find yourself, really? Then give yourself up for my sake, and you will be invited to drink wine at my banquet feast. And it's going to be one heck of a party. So don't let these cheap imitations take its place. Keep with Aslan. Keep with Jesus. That's the only way to use alcohol wisely. Now, there are tons of questions still, right, about what does this look like practically in my life? And I can't answer all those because this is just a short little shift talk meant to introduce us to this question. But CSF did a few years ago produce a podcast called uh, Drinking and Thinking with CSF. And so if you're interested in sorting through these questions a little bit more, I highly recommend this podcast. You can just go to Spotify and find it on our page. Just search Drinking and Thinking CSF, and, and I'm sure that'll be the first hit. Um, and so hopefully that will help you 
get a little bit more practical handle on some of the things we discussed tonight. But in the meantime, let's have a little discussion about this at your tables. So here are three questions that, that you all can discuss. One, how can we abuse alcohol? And be specific here. Um, instead of how far is too far, you know, this question that we ask your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, how much alcohol is too much alcohol? And then what does it mean to meet alcohol with Jesus? So discuss those at your tables, and then Lexus will be back up here after that.